Bert Cohen. And with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And the dignity of man depends on our feeling like we have control over our future. The right to self-government is one of the most basic tenets of our identity as Americans. Our own war for independence in 1776 was all about this basic human striving. Imperialism works great for the conquering nation for a while, but as history makes quite plain, empires always fall eventually because people demand the ability to govern themselves. And I wish I had saved the globe of the world I had as a kid in the 50s. There was French West Africa, German East Africa, the British colonies of Egypt, Sudan, Rhodesia, and South Africa. Spain had Morocco and Mauritania. The Portuguese owned Angola. The Belgians, through genocide of millions, owned the Congo. Even the Italians got into the act, owning Libya and Somalia. Today, there are no empires as such, but the entities that still, still seek to own and control the economies and nations of Africa hold on to great financial and political power over the people of Africa. In the 21st century, in addition to the more traditional Western European and American multinational financial and resource extraction interests, China appears to be the rising developer of nations in Africa. Today on Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest is Ameth Lowe, a Senegalese scholar, and we're going to talk about pan-Africanist perspective. Ameth, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Bert. Well, I am not sure when the struggle for self-determination in Africa began, but I do know about the infamous so-called Scramble for Africa, which was the occupation, division, and colonization of African territory by European powers between 1881 and the First World War. It was also called the Conquest of Africa. The blatant racism necessary for the underlying assumption from the, by these powers that they had a right to do what they did is is truly stomach-turning. And now in the 21st century, the American president dismisses all these African nations as, and I hesitate to say it on the air, but our president said it, he called them shithole countries. Of course, that only hurts America, as the African nations respond accordingly. Africa has great riches in terms of resources and the potential for robust economic development. So what are the struggles and possibility for the people of the various nations in Africa now in the age of post-imperialism? Is there a picture emerging of a brighter post-capitalist pan-African future? Well, again, our guest today is Ameth Lowe, a Senegalese-born pan-Africanist militant who has written a piece called The Long March 
to post-capitalist transition, pan-Africanist perspectives, and I saw it in Dissident Voice magazine. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Amit. It's, it's of course, impossible to pinpoint when various political movements start. But you suggest that the current pan-African revolution started really in 1804. You write that most of oppressed peoples live in countries at the periphery of the world capitalist system. Please tell us about the historic significance of the Haitian slave revolt against the French in 1804. And in, in what ways was, was it kind of a, a start, an ignition of a collective consciousness for the diaspora of black people around the world? Thanks for having me on your program. It's a pleasure being with your audience. And yes, you can say that the Haitian Revolution itself marked a decisive point in the history of the struggle of people of African descent, even though it was not a starting point, but it was a decisive victory. You mentioned earlier in your introduction the scramble of Africa studying uh, uh, with the partition of the continent, but uh, before that the slavery was taking place for hundreds of years, and millions of African people were deported from the African continent and spread uh, in the Caribbean, in North America, in South America, across the world. And that hemorrhage of the population of the African continent had a great impact on its current situation today. But what we need to understand is that uh, wherever there is oppression, there is always resistance to fight against that oppression. Mm -hmm. So from the beginning of the slave trade, uh, there has been always revolts and uh, movements of, of rebellion to fight against uh, slavery, whether it is from the departure within the African continent all the way to the landing ground in the, uh, the destination in North America or in the Americas. So what made kind of uh, stand out the Haitian uh, experience is that uh, this was one we can say was a successful mass revolt of black slaves to, who decided to take their destiny into their own hands and then put an end to this uh, uh, crime against humanity called slavery. Yes. And because of that, I guess, uh, because of what the symbol is represented and the inspiration it gave to millions of black people around the world, it represented a symbol. And uh, I argue in my uh, document that because of the symbol, Haiti has never been forgotten to have taken a stand clearly and to have won that first victory to put an end to slavery into its territory. Yes, that was a big one. And, and it's still, it's kind of hard to really imagine the whole slave system, but it was there. And, you know, most white people don't ever stop to think about the role of slavery and servitude in the success of the Industrial Revolution and the acceleration of capitalism around the world. How significant was slavery and servitude to the success of global capitalism? And how does that relate to the communist movement's statement on African liberation in 1922? Yeah, it has a very important contribution. The slave trade has played a major role in uh, laying down the foundation for the Industrial Revolution and to 
create the conditions for uh, capitalism to develop and evolve later on to a higher form called imperialism. Yeah. And the reason why is that is that just imagine simply, to put it simply for people, not to be too complicated, imagine that you take tens of millions of people, all in their youngest age, maybe between uh, 10 to 35, 40 years old, mm-hmm. very fit and then very strong, and then you make them work free of any type of compensation for hundreds of years. Imagine the type of capital accumulation that you can generate <laughs> from that from that labor. And because of that, that's what has fueled the U.S. Uh, capitalism to reach a high ground, and it's a European... Uh, uh, nations like like France and, and uh, Holland and Portugal, those countries who are mainly involved massively in in uh, in, in, uh, in, uh, in in slavery. So there is no doubt in my mind that uh, if capitalism has uh, uh, evolved that fast during the last couple of centuries, it is due to a point, certain extent, to the yes. uh, slavery in the slave system that was really built upon the explo- super-exploitation of millions of African people freely with no compensation, with no pay salary for nothing for hundreds of years. Now, how that is related to, 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 the, to the rise of the, and, or the development of the communist revolution? I mentioned that uh, the Haitian revolution took place in uh, almost one, in uh, uh, 1804, right? So... It was before uh, the, 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 the Russian Bolshevik Revolution. But because this process has been going on, as I mentioned in my introduction, since the beginning of the slave system, when the communist movement was born, it acknowledged the, 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 the fact that the African people, black people, were one of the most uh, oppressed segments of the society. Definitely. And from that point on, they developed some type of solidarity, and which is reflected into the documents that we can find in the archive of the communist movement. Now, there were some, also some Pan-Africanist uh, elements who were uh, very instrumental in uh, raising the consciousness of the communist movement about the fate of black people, whether it is in uh, North America, in the U.S., and uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the global diaspora. One of the main uh, person on uh, at the level that I can name is uh, George Padmore, who is a native of Trinidad and Tobago, who was living in the U.S. as a student, and who at one point was uh, joined the Communist Party and then was uh, deployed in Germany to represent. And Padmore played a critical role in uh, within communist circle to make them aware of the fate of, of black people and the colonial question in general. So that's uh, why there has been this connectivity, this connection between the Pan-Africanist movement and the communist movement from, from the, at one point, especially at the, at the birth of the communist international. Now, there have been, there have been some pause or some uh, period where that relationship has been going up and down because of a lot of different uh, uh, views or orientations, whether it is strategic or tactical, that uh, kind of created some distance between the two movements. But uh, yeah. later on, they, they were managed again to reconnect at a later stage when the anti-apartheid struggle was going on in Southern Africa, where Cuba managed to yes. connect again with the African people in solidarity movement, genuine solidarity, and then 
contributed significantly to the decisive defeat yes. of the apartheid regime in South Africa. Absolutely. No question about that. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Live. And we are talking with Ameth Lowe about a piece he wrote in Dissident Voice called The Long March to Post-Capitalist Transition, Pan-Africanist Perspectives. And you talk about oppressed people. And Marxism has always tried to appeal to oppressed people and, and took an early, early stand against racism. And they have a belief, obviously, in in internationalist solidarity, workers of the world unite and all that. But under the Soviets, it didn't exactly work that way. You write that the outbreak of World War II led to a breach between the Pan-Africanists and the communist movement. I wonder if you could tell us about that, please. Yes, uh, as I mentioned, in, in, in the early, if you remember correctly, the, the Soviet Union was one of the driving force of the socialist camp at that time. Yes was kind of diplomatically aligned with, uh, with, with Germany at the beginning of the war. It's mm-hmm. just later on, around 1941-42, that uh, yeah. they, 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 they joined the anti-Hitler mm-hmm. movement. Right. And uh, because of that, when they kind of tried to rally the, around the idea of having a massive united front to fight against uh, uh, Nazism and, and, and Hitler in, in Germany, they kind of suggested that... Uh, all other questions have to be put on a side burner and then put aside for now because it uh, comes second uh, compared to the main, what they call the main contradiction, which was uh, to fight against Hitler. Now that ha- that uh, that was problematic, and uh, because uh, yeah. as I mentioned in my in my in my in my text, uh, most of the countries in Africa were not colonized by Germany. You mentioned that there was. Italy and Germans, uh, who oh. have few colonies, but uh, the, the major players in, in terms of colonialism was, was France and Portugal and, and, and etc. So for us, uh, for a lot of people like uh, Pan-Africanists, it was out of question to put aside the, the colonial question, yeah. the struggle against uh, colonialism and the rightful struggle to gain independence under the auspices of that we need to to rally around the fight against Nazism. So that have created some shift yeah. between the two movements, uh, and, uh, uh, which is quite understandable because right. uh, as of today, nobody can get, think of a situation where people will say, okay, you will put aside your, your own uh, main contradiction, which is the <laughs> colonial question, uh, with billions of people being oppressed uh, in Africa and then being under colonial rule, and then uh, try to rally uh, cause that you understand the justice, the just uh, yeah, aspect yeah. of that cause, but you know you cannot dismiss your own uh, internal grievances and to go rally something else. Yeah, I mean, that's what it's about, self-determination. And, you know, the Soviets, boy, they sure had their problems right from the very beginning. Now, mm-hmm. very few listening today are aware of the role that African soldiers played in the Second World War, defeating fascism in Europe. I, frankly, had never heard of the Senegalese sharpshooters before reading your essay. I wonder if you could tell us about them and how this affected what you call the dismantling of colonial structures and heralding a period of decolonization. Yes, during the, during the, the Second World War, as I say, a lot of the French-African countries were... Uh, still under, under French colonial rule. Right. So they had some 
elements from the African elites who are kind of representative of the African population, supposedly in the National Assembly in France. And there's one famous person called Blaise Jane. He was the deputy at the National Assembly. He was originally from Senegal and who was charged with the task of trying to recruit uh, soldiers in all of African colonies in order to come support the fight against, uh, against Hitler. As a result of that, there were thousands of thousands of African troops that contributed to the, to, 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 to the fight against in, in World War II and then made decisive victories uh, during those, 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 those fights, even though it's unfortunate that uh, at the end of the war uh, there have been attempts to put them aside in order to show that uh, Europe was liberated mostly by Europeans and, uh, and their allies, even though the, the, the colonial population played a major role mm. in, 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 in defeating uh, Hitler. So uh, the Charoi I mentioned is the Charoi is a neighborhood in, in Senegal, not far from the capital Dakar, maybe 10 miles away. And uh, at around 1944, and a lot of thousands of troops were being demobilized, they were returning to Africa, and they were getting stationed in, uh, in Senegal. And uh, since most of these two elements were coming from the older colonies, whether it is Niger, Mali, Burkina Faso, Ivory Coast, etc., Dakar was, uh, Senegal was really the, the capital of the West African Federation and that was being ruled by, by the French. So that they were stationed there for some time, and while they were asking for mm. their demobilization pay, mm. uh, morning of 1944, they were massacred. They were called to come outside of the camp, and when they were in line waiting to hear orders, they were kind of bombarded by the French troops, and there were hundreds of people who oh. died. Oh Up to today, we don't know the exact number, but the issue is that there are hundreds of soldiers who were massacred in Charoi in 1944. It's a historical event that the French, even though they have recognized it, they have not really fully accepted full responsibility of that because they tried to put it under the uh, excuse that it was a rebellion, which was not true, oh. because people were just asking for their due, for their pay before they get demobilized and return into their respective countries. Amazing. And that that's happened a number of times, that these... Uh, you know, it wasn't just the Germans that were the bad guys in the First and Second World Wars. Uh, you know, they, the colonizers, <laughs> they, uh, I could go into that, but it, it's, they don't treat their colonial people as well as the masters, you know, and that happened with the British as well. Right. Uh, in 1936, uh, in Italy, Mussolini decided to look macho. He loved to look macho. He reminds me quite a bit of our current president, except a different uh, color. Our, our guy is orange. Anyway, he decided to look macho by invading Ethiopia. Now, how did this one-sided assault actually, over time, serve to speed the end of colonialism in Africa? Yeah, I mean, you have to understand that uh, at one point, on all the African countries, all were under colonial rule, except Ethiopia and Liberia. Liberia, which uh, uh, received mm -hmm. uh, a segment of, of free slaves that came back from the U.S. and that were settled in Liberia. So those two countries represented, in the sense, uh, symbols of the only exception of countries in Africa that haven't been under colonial rule. So now when Mussolini decided to invade uh, Ethiopia, who's been... Uh, 
monarchy or a self-governed monarchy for a very sure. long time. Mm-hmm. It kind of hit some chords on uh, African consciousness uh-huh. around the world, and then the population have kind of rallied around that cause and then trying to defend uh, the, the sovereignty of, uh, of, of Ethiopia. Of Ethiopia. Now, at the time, uh, it kind of coincided also with uh, the rise of lots of movement who were starting to challenge the colonial rule in uh, in Africa. Most of those elements were uh, in the, in the Europe, in in, in, the, in the United Kingdom, led by people like C.L.I. James, who is from uh, uh, who is a friend of George Padmore that I mentioned earlier. George Padmore being the one who was uh, part of the communist movement. But uh, in every capital, in Paris and in Lisbon, you had uh, elements, uh, African youth who were studying in those uh, countries or sure. uh, who were very active in the student politics and then getting radicalized politically, uh-huh. who were starting to put on the table the question of the decolonization. And uh, when the Italian invasion uh, occurred, it kind of created the condition for people to rally around and uh-huh. then understand the need really to put an end to this uh, uh, to this situation but also what is more important also to that create that connectivity between uh, that connection between uh, people of african descent that goes beyond the national state as uh-huh. they existed right. and uh, that is the basis of of, of, of pan africanism that's why i say that pan africanism was born in the diaspora out of the consciousness of the black diaspora of the oppression of black people from within the continent. And they managed to start trying to organize uh, that goes uh, beyond the national territories sure. in order to challenge the, uh, the colonial situation. In unity, there is strength. Out of many, one. We Absolutely. I've heard that before. <laughs> I remember as a little kid, I have to say, being a fan of Patrice Lumumba. He rose up to become prime minister of what had been the Belgian Congo. Uh, why was he assassinated, and I, who who do we think did it? Was was he part of the Pan African uprising? Yeah, I mean uh, that's the Lumumba was was a symbol of of, of the Pan African Renaissance, what we call the Pan African uh-huh. Renaissance. Uh-huh. As you rightly mentioned, that uh, he came to uh, as a, was become a prime minister in Congo, and Congo, by the way for people who may not be aware of the history of the country, the country is that one of the richest countries in, in Africa. Hmm. In terms of resources, in terms of, of, of resources, there's no much to Congo in, no. on, in, the, in the globe hmm. uh, in terms of what, what they can have. And uh, one day, uh, and it was colonized by the Belgium, yes. as, as you mentioned also. So when uh, Lumumba came with a nationalist agenda or a pan-Africanist nationalist agenda, uh, try to put an end to, to colonialism and try to reclaim the sovereignty of the country. Of course, it kind of challenges lots of uh, interests that are connected, uh, uh, interests that are multinational in dimension, and uh, that's why the imperialist forces have not uh, hesitated to eliminate him through a conspiracy that involved uh, countries like uh, Belgium, who was the main colonizer, but France was also uh, part of the, uh, of the, of the, of the, of the coup, the United States were, were part of it. So it was uh, an international conspiracy that decided to, to, to neutralize uh, Lumumba because they did not want the example of uh, uh-huh. the Lumumba to spread uh, across uh, and then uh, influence other countries who 
all were starting to look into the, the question of putting an end to colonialism. So, unfortunately, you can see that since that time, Congo have not re- also recovered from that situation because when he was murdered and assassinated and most of his uh, friends and comrades were killed and or chased away out of the country, they, uh, the imperialist forces managed to put in place uh, their puppet, as it is usually the case, yeah. uh, which is uh, Mobutu Seseko, who ran the country on a dictatorship uh, uh, approach for a very long time until he was just away from power around the 1997. Wow. And that uh, represented a hub for, uh, for, for imperialist penetration in Africa uh, because uh, you had... Uh, Across the, uh, you had uh, Angola, who was a very mm-hmm. rich country also, next door, uh, former colonies, Portuguese colony. Right. But uh, as soon as Angola became independent, also the same approach of destabilization took place, and then the uh, imperialist force managed to create a, a movement called UNITA, led by uh-huh. Jonas Samibi, who was a close ally of the dictatorship that was happening in Congo, and they managed to destabilize the country until maybe 10 year, years ago yeah. when that rebellion was put to an end because uh, the main leader was, uh, was defeated. So you can see the implications that uh, yes. the assassination of Patrick uh, Lumumba had in the whole region, and then that goes beyond Congo, but it has impacted also uh, the situation in Angola and eventually uh, the uh, Southern African situation with the apartheid system. Yeah, it's been a tough, tough struggle, that's for sure. But uh, various different things uh, can lead to uh, people uniting together. You know, something real like, uh, well, not just real, but but real clear, like uh, Mussolini and the slaughter. I mean, it's just unbelievable slaughter in Ethiopia and then the assassination of Patrice Lumumba in the interests of the corporate uh, uh, greedy powers. Uh, you, you, you know, they the corporate greedy powers certainly don't want... Him to be a live example, one which reminds me of Cuba here on this hemisphere. Uh, you know, we you can't have. I mean, Cuba was a uh, basically a colony of of America for many many years. They had their puppet regime, uh, Batista, and then uh, you know the the concern was that Castro could spread the ideas throughout the rest of South America, which also has you know a lot of uh, resources, and of course he's done that. And well-known communist leader Che Guevara headed up a mission to Congo in 1965. What was that all about, and, and how did that turn out? I, I, I guess he tried to do some, some good things and, uh, and help the people of the Congo. Yes, and, and just, just before to talk about Che Guevara, maybe you, you rightly mentioned that uh, when there is an oppression, there is also concern for people to unite. And yes. the best example of that is that uh, I can uh, raise the question of uh, the National Liberation Movement in Guinea-Bissau, which was led by Amerikal Cabral. Uh, Amerikal Cabral was so instrumental in defeating the the Portuguese army that he kind of contributed uh, to the condition of people who are fighting in Guinea-Bissau, returning to to, to Portugal, and then putting... Uh, organizing a coup, a military coup that removed the dictatorship in in Portugal. Mm-hmm. So you can see that this is a concrete example how a struggle happening in one context can have implication in another part of the world. And that was a good contribution of the fight of African National Liberation Movement in Guinea-Bissau, how they contributed to put an end to fascism 
in, in, in Portugal and also a great contribution to freeing Europe from fascism. Now, in uh, terms of, uh, of Che Che Guevara, of course, uh, Cuba being an internationalist country, uh, has mm. been uh, involved in solidarity movement uh, with the national liberation movement in Africa. So at one point, they managed to, uh, Che Guevara, I guess, uh, decided to, uh, was sent to, to Africa in order to help organize the, the, uh, the, the resistance movement. And sure. then uh, uh, he ended up being in, in Congo. In, even though that, that expedition did not succeed, uh, he left the country maybe one or two years after and returned to Cuba before de being deployed again into Bolivia, where he was later yes. murdered. But this is a, a reflection of the long history of Cuban solidarity movements uh, uh, with Africa, with, because uh, to one point also you have to note that uh, Cuba have a large... Uh, African history yes. because okay, of the right. of the slave trade I mentioned earlier. There's a large population of this uh, segment of this population who is of African descent, mm -hmm. and uh, also when the, the the revolution took place with uh, Castro, it was naturally that uh, they sympathized it sure. with uh, the situation of black people in uh, in uh, in Cuba and also in in Africa. So so as I mentioned, Che was 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 there, and then it didn't succeed. But it didn't stop the Cubans from continuing their solidarity movement because later on, Cuba sent expedition forces that went to all the way to Angola to support the fight against uh, the invasion of the South African army who was trying to mm. take over the whole Southern African region. And so that's uh, what I can say mostly regarding Che Guevara. And certainly, as people know, South Africa was at the time <laughs> Not exactly uh, for liberation, shall we say. Uh, they were an apartheid country. One of the main things about the United Nations that the far right in America hates is the power of the non-aligned nations. Uh, and this is, you know, there's the Soviet bloc used to be and the American bloc uh, used to be. Uh, the nations of Africa are a significant part of this non-aligned nations movement. For those who may not be familiar with the non-aligned movement, I wonder if you could tell us about that and and its uh, kind of worldwide uh, power and how it appeals to so many people. Yeah, the non-aligned movement uh, kind of was a continuation of uh, of, of another movement that uh, uh, was initiated initially by the communist movement, and then in 1924 or 26, there was a conference that took place in uh, in Belgium. Uh, and uh, that conference was attended by people from India, from different parts of the country that were at the time uh, under colonial rule. And uh, one of the key person uh, in that in that in that conference, in the organizing of that conference, was uh, the the former uh, scientist Albert Einstein, who yes. was uh, a honorary president of that conference. And that conference called for. Uh, uh, on the agenda, the, the question, the colonial question. So later on, and there was another event that was very important that took place in Indonesia uh, with uh, leaders of uh, of countries like from Africa, from from Egypt, from India, from uh, Indonesia, from the global south. Who I would say attended, and it's from that time on that uh, the agenda of the non-aligned movement was put on the table as a movement that try to take its autonomy in relation to the face-to-face uh, -face relationship that was happening between 
what was called then the Eastern Bloc and the Western Bloc. Because as I mentioned earlier, those countries were all facing the question of, of, of colonialism and then uh, they decided to launch this movement to accelerate the process of decolonization. You had uh, uh, major leaders like uh, Kwame Kuma, who was the president oh, of yes. Ghana. You had uh, uh, from Egypt uh, also. from So basically, it kind of regrouped uh, countries from, from South America, from uh, Caribbean, Cuba, Asia and Africa, which are the, uh, the almost the majority of the population at the time, and then uh, try to decide to to organize uh, uh, the global South in a process that will uh, put an end to, to to the colonial question. Colonies do have to be ended. I can understand how they came about. I don't like it, but uh, they are being ended, and various so many countries have have tried to colonize, and it's amazing to look at the old map of Africa, and I urge any listener to to look at an old map of Africa. And as as our guest said, uh, virtually all of it was owned by white Western European powers. It's amazing to me. I mean, the the, the arrogance. Uh, Anyway, uh, and I'm so foolish. I actually thought that uh, with the election of Barack Obama, it might be a real long-term blow against racism, Boy, was I wrong. I was so naive, huh? uh, as we've seen it lately. As you write, Ahmed, divisions represent a continuing barrier to urgent unification, end of quote. How united or divided are left-leaning movements in Africa today? You ask the question, and I'll now ask you, what is the present state of the Pan-Africanist movement and the socialist and communist forces in Africa and in the diaspora? What's the status of that? Yeah, the state is uh, kind of mixed because, uh, as I mentioned, because of you had different currents within the socialist movement and the communist movement at the time. You had the Chinese bloc, the the the, the Russian extra. So those kind of uh, differences in terms of approach regarding the socialist revolution kind of impacted also the the progressive forces or the pan-Africanist forces that were inside the continent. So you have end up you end up having a situation where uh, those political forces inside the continent were kind of fragmented also along those 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 similar lines that were happening at the international level. So because of that it has created some condition where you have some sometimes some animosity between groups uh, some of them calling themselves Trotskyist or uh, Maoist organization, that that kind of preventing them, unfortunately, to unite uh, into a larger yes. block to be able to tackle the question of, uh, of underdevelopment of, of colonialism. Because even though most of these countries have gained some type of formal independence around the 60s, mm-hmm. if you look at the situation, currently you know that the, the, the same forces op- are still operating and then the African countries are still not free uh, and uh, do not have the possibility to to decide their own uh, sovereign path to where they would like to go in terms of development. That's still controlled by the uh, multinational corporation, by institutions yes. like the the IMF, the World Bank, who dictate which kind of policy they can put in place. They are still controlled uh, by, by by major uh, nations like the U.S., the France, Russia. So the challenges of uh, uh, of colonialism haven't been really un- uh, overcome. And uh, today, as we speak, uh, the forces are still there, but they have still 
uh, having that fragmentation that, that weakens them them because, because uh, as I mentioned, they they they're kind of fragmented and then small in terms of number. Now the challenge is that now that we have a massive uh, recently non-aligned, non-partisan type of forces emerging in the continent and then trying to put an end to certain situations like what happened in Tunisia with the revolt that removed the dictatorship of Ben Ali or what happened in Burkina Faso with the the uh, the, the, the mass uh, insurrection that took place maybe three, four years ago and that removed the regime of uh, Blaise Compaore who was in place for almost 30 years and all those forces were kind of emerging from outside the classical political parties. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so the challenge is that today, will those uh, political forces be able to to regroup yes. and then create an embryo of forces that is strong enough organizationally and politically and in the vision in order to channel the type of revolt that we're witnessing across the continent, whether it is in Tunisia, in uh, in Burkina Faso, in other countries, and make new inroads in the path for national liberation. Uh, we've seen that so so often in the left. It it uh, it gets divides amongst itself. Uh, one is not pure enough for the other. This happened mm-hmm. during the Spanish Civil War when the fascists won, and it happens a lot, unfortunately, on the left. But uh, hopefully, you know, the the Pan Africanist idea of uh, being together and, you know, getting rid of the last vestiges of, of colonialism, I would hope would unite people. And you mentioned the, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. Uh, they have a long and ugly history of imposing structural adjustment programs. That's what they call it in many developing nations. Uh, I mean, not just in Africa, but all over the developing world and the global south, basically. Tell us about the effects of the IMF, please. And I wonder if... China is doing anything like that now. China is getting really big and involved in Africa now that uh, Trump, you know, turned away from them. So I wonder if you could speak to uh, whether China is doing anything like the IMF did, or are they doing it better, working with people, not controlling? Yeah, I mean, the, after the National Liberation Movement uh, kind of faded away a little bit, and uh, and countries kind of gained a little bit of uh, formal independence. Uh, we have entered a new phase in which uh, uh, global capitalism have managed to regain control of what they have lost, uh, the ground they have lost a little bit through the National Liberation Movement. And it is within that context that the IMF and the World Bank were the, 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 the hands of the imperialist power in order to regain control of uh, the situation on the ground and then keep the control over the, the, these countries. Where, where they would like to go. So that has been very, very bad impact at, at, at the economic level, for sure, because everybody knows that the policy of this institution is not geared towards helping countries to no. develop, because there is not one single country in the world that has been developed by the World Bank or by the IMF. Not a single example. No. So this, this institution, when they come into a country, they are trying to manage the situation in a way that they still control the path of underdevelopment, keep these countries, uh, allow the, the, the Western nation to continue the paging of the national resource of the country, uh, put them into debt, and then through the debt mechanism, kind of have some control of them to 
so that they won't be able to really have freedom to decide which policy they adopt. Now you raise an interesting question, the question of China. Uh, everybody knows that China, is, of course, is getting big in Africa involvement, and uh, there have been some criticism and some also major investment uh, of Chinese capital in, in a lot of countries. But in, to my sense, some of the, the most... Uh, uh, the biggest critics are coming from the Western world in the in the sense of trying to say that the African countries are being colonized by by China and that they are trying to 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 control them. For me, that is just a result of the fact that uh, the monopoly that they have been enjoying for centuries and having being the, the the sole actors in terms of piercing the continent is being challenged by the other forces that are coming from what they call the BRICS, Brazil, India, China, Russia, becoming major players in African continent. Now, that doesn't mean that there is not issues in terms of the relationship between China and Africa. Uh But in my sense, that uh, needs to be addressed by Africans. Uh And that's why it is important to put back the Pan-Africanist agenda uh, on, on the table. It doesn't make any sense at all to have these African countries, 53 or 54 in total, trying to deal with China on a one-by-one basis. First of all, because these countries are too weak to represent anything significant in terms of creating the balance of power to allow them to negotiate with China on an equal footing. So that's why it is important that the weaknesses that are existing right now in the relationship between China and African countries have to be overcome mostly by African countries who should be going together as a group yes. uh, through some type of political federation. That we to, that's what, is what we advocate, to have a political federation where uh, we're going to be dealing with the rest of the world as a bloc rather than individual states who are, as I mentioned, too weak economically to, to, to compete on the global scale or to negotiate even the terms of... The, how the how the world economy will be will be will be governed because if you take a small country of of, of two million people with mm-hmm. very small political power, you can just tell that for sure this will never be in a position to have a, a sovereign path to their to their own process of development. Just to conclude on that one, I, that is true that there are some 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 questions that need to need to be uh, raised in, in terms of the relationship, but people should not also fall into a trap of trying to rescue those who have enjoyed the monopoly of exploitation of the African continent for all, all these centuries and then try to confuse people in their head and trying to justify that uh, it's because they are losing ground that uh, the other one is, is taking over from them. Now, I wonder if China has learned uh, from the uh, colonizers or are they working with, I mean, I would think... You know, they have a lot of capital, a lot of expertise, and they want to build a lot of things. Do they work with Pan-Africanism, or are they, are they once again trying to dominate and call the shots themselves and not work with local people, but, but you know, above them? Is, there, is that kind of relationship going on, or are they, have they learned and are treating their people as partners, you know, the local people? Yeah, but but first of all, we have to understand that the, the states and, and countries have have interests. China right now have lots of needs. They are in a pro, in the phase of their development where they have lots of needs in terms of resources. And where are those resources? They are in Africa. 
So they're, they're defending at the interest. They're trying to deploy their strategy to get uh, to be to be present where where the resources are. It is uh, something that uh, every other country yeah. tend to do at, uh, in general. So it is people who suffer from those conditions who have to define or contribute also to defining the the type of relationship that they want. And that's why I'm saying that the African countries they are the one who are on which. Uh, lies the main responsibility to create the condition to to defend themselves and then negotiate on equal footing with China or India or Europe or any other countries on equal footing and defend their interests because as some people say interests they don't have uh, countries don't have friends they have interests to defend <laughs> yes we've seen that for a long period of time if you just tuned in Bert Cohen here our guest today is uh, Ameth Lowe, a Senegalese-born pan-Africanist militant who's written a very interesting piece called The Long March to Post-Capitalist Transition, Pan-Africanist Perspectives, Working Together. Now, you, you had a word I had not ever heard before, desertification, making new deserts uh, because of so many things that are going on. Uh, it's obviously... The expansion of, of deserts is a big problem. How is it being addressed? Is there pan-Africanism work at work there to address uh, more deserts being created? It is a big issue. This is a big issue because if you take a look at, for example, for West, northwestern Africa, you have the Sahara Desert that is, uh, that's been advancing uh, years after years, and that creates a lot of conditions uh, coupled with the, the, the climate change happening in the, in the globe in general. You have uh, these processes of desertification taking place, and then uh, more and more arable land or land that was used for cultivation is not really available anymore. Now, this is a big challenge, and that is, uh, that's uh, something that contributes to people moving into, in, in, into more areas where they can continue to survive on the basis of agriculture and, and those kind of stuff. The viable, the most viable response that we have seen in, from a Pan-African perspective has been uh, the experience that uh, was in Burkina Faso. Uh, Burkina Faso is a small landlocked country in West Africa, which is at the, at the, at the door of the Sahel Desert that I just mentioned earlier, who is facing this kind of desertification processes. And when Thomas Sankara came into power in 1983, unfortunately he was there for just four years and because of the stand he was taking, the, the, the nationalist stand or the revolutionary stand uh, that, that, he, that he took with his government. He was uh, like uh, all the people like Lumumba, who was murdered in 1987. But within the four years period he was in, uh, in power, they managed to really engage and involve the population into massive uh, campaign to, 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 to plant trees uh, across the continent, uh -huh. the, the country, in order to, 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 to fight against the advances of the desert. So that was a viable example that people should be looking at as an alternative, how with the people's, mob, people's mobilization and involvement in fighting this, this, this big uh, phenomenon, uh, whether it is climatic, uh, ecological phenomenon, etc., they can make some victories, some gains. Uh, but unfortunately, as I mentioned, the uh, Sankara model, model was uh, put on end in 1987 through a coup where he was assassinated with thousands and dozens of his comrades. And uh, that's the continuation of the same reaction of imperialist forces who are trying mm -hmm. to prevent any example from taking hold and then being able to influence the rest of the continent. 
to right. move away from the, the the established path of underdevelopment. Mm. Well, the British certainly did that in India. They did not want any <laughs> local uprisings. They didn't want people to realize, hey, I can govern myself. They can't stand that. <laughs> now, most listeners here in America have heard of Boko Harum. A large part of Africans' population is Muslim. I wonder if you could talk to us about the strength and the reality of Boko Haram and other jihadist movements within the uh, Muslim population of African nations. Are they a serious threat? Are they uh, pan-Africanist as well? I don't think so. I don't think so. No, this uh, this uh, religious movement called whether it is the Boko Haram or uh, uh, the movement in Somalia. Uh, I can't remember the name. Right. These are recent recent movement that that came into being in the last maybe fifteen twenty years, and you mentioned earlier the, how the structural adjustment program yeah. kind of impacted and structured the the economies of the African countries, creating massive poverty that 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 that, that uh, impacted mostly on the young population of the continent because the continent is still very very young in this population. And these are because of the condition that you can have today. Uh, organizations like uh, Boko Haram and uh, other movements similar who are able to to recruit young 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 Africans who are desperate in terms because they have no opportunities to 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 to, to have a decent life because uh, of poverty and underdevelopment. Now these these organizations are n- nothing. Uh, Pan-Africanist in in the in the orientation uh-huh. because uh, the 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 basis of 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 organizing is based at the religious level. So even though African population is uh, to a larger extent Muslim, yeah. that is still very very light because people are still deeply rooted into the ancestral religions of uh, uh, of, of African religions, which nice. makes them even if they are Muslim, they are not really most of the time too extremist in their views. Uh, from 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 a religious perspective. So, and I would think that uh, these forces. What we have to understand also is that these forces are being uh, used or manipulated by uh, international forces who are trying to mm. control the continent. And uh, mm. uh, when whether some from time to time they might seem to be going in conflict between with this movement, but at some time this movement uh, play an important role. In facilitating the establishment of these uh, imperialist forces inside the continent, because they will show that we are needed here to help African countries uh, to resolve the security question. Even though everybody knows that there is a connection between these imperialist forces and uh, this so-called jihadist movement uh, that they manipulate on uh-huh. and off, depending on uh, their the local interest and, uh, and and the interest of the time. Indeed, no doubt about it. But uh, I wonder about. The uh, European Union, you know, now that uh, Donald Trump is just ignoring Africa entirely. And, you know, obviously the countries of Europe have been a problem for a long time in, in, you know, owning and controlling the continent of Africa. What about the EU? Have they learned some lessons? Have they stepped in to work with development? And, And if so, how are they being received? No, I mean, the European relationship with Africa is, is still the same. It's still a, a relation of, of, of domination. Oh, and uh, and uh, I, I, would, I would like to correct a little bit that uh, the U.S. or Donald Trump is out of Africa, which is not really the reality. I don't think so, because uh, 
If you look at the situation uh, for the last 10 or 15 years, the U.S. has been trying to come back in the, in, in the African continent because of the, the major competition happening with uh, China coming in, Russia coming uh-huh. in, India, etc., in the European Union. So that's what explains that uh, the U.S. has been trying for the last 10 or 15 years to establish some big military bases in uh-huh. Africa, which uh-huh. haven't been successful so far. Uh-huh. But... Because if they succeed, they manage to build some type of bilateral relationship with countries on the one-to-one relationship where they have a web of military bases located across the continent. And that the main objective of that military presence of the U.S. Army in Africa today is to regain control and then start to have a role in to play within the African continent. So... I wanted to correct a little bit that sure, uh, sure. that comparison that uh, is not uh, this quite the opposite. The U.S. is is well back in Africa in force through the Africom uh, project, and then uh, they are working very aggressively to counter the Egypt or the expansion of other sphere of influence like the Chinese or the European Union. Why am the I European not European Union? They're the same. It's not. Uh, Changing is the same type of dynamics. So it is up to the Africans who yes. have to build the condition to to change that. Of course, and I'm I'm not surprised, and uh, maybe I was hopeful that uh, we were being less colonialistic, but so it goes. Uh, just to to close out, for you write that for Africa and the Caribbean, such a transition, you know, to Pan Africanism should involve a deepening of Pan Africanism. Uh, among the uh, African population, which must pose, again, the urgency of decisive steps toward creation of a federal state, a federation of Africa and its diaspora. What would that look like in your ideal world? Ideally, that would be a political federation that will regroup all African countries and Countries in the uh, in in in, uh, in the Caribbean or South America that have a massive presence of black population. Right. And the reason we advocating that is that um, we came to the conclusion that uh, we, as it exists as the, the this country exists today, there's not much that we can do in terms of. Uh, Mm-hmm. having a role on the political affairs on how the the world is being is being managed or governed and there is no it's not even the possibility to create the condition for our own security and because of that that's why what justify the presence of the military forces coming from the the European Union or the United States who are trying to build this uh, this military basis and the auspices of trying to to, to, to fight Boko Haram also, uh-huh. what, what have you. Uh-huh. So if you do not have the possibility to all create the condition of your own survival, your own security, we have to create a larger, larger set or uh, ensemble and that will involve reconnecting with our brothers and sisters in, uh, in, in the diaspora because uh, as some people say, it's one people, one aim, one destiny. And because of the the common history and also the challenges that we are facing are similar that create uh, objectively the condition for those two segments to yes. reconnect and in, in order to bring a solution. Because uh, the, the similar condition of, of domination that we have in Africa is also to a certain extent happening in the Caribbean because uh, yes. not, not of the, most of those countries are still living, as I mentioned, in the uh, they are living under the tourism sector mm-hmm. kind of things. But those tur- tourism are not uh, 
really controlled by this country. You have the financial sector that are uh, controlled by major banks uh, coming from the U.S., U.K., and, and Canada. And uh, so to some extent, you have a lot of similarities sure. in terms of the concern, not to mention the common history that we have gone and the trauma that we have experienced that are uh, mm. legitimate reasons for bringing back those population together onto their common path for the future. Well, perhaps it can happen. There's a lot of work to do for sure. Thank you so much for being with us. Very, very educational here. Ameth Lowe, uh, his article is in Dissident Voice. Uh, you write for them on a regular basis? No, that was my first publication ah. on the Dissident Voice, but I hope that there will be more in the future. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for being with us on uh, Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks so much for having me, and it was a pleasure. I hope that uh, it was instructive enough to share with your audience. We hope so. Thank you. And this is a little bit of some African music from Fela Kuti from Nigeria. You see, at the shrine, Africa shrine, Lagos, you have to go with the music, you see. Coming. 